the, the other thing that I would mention about negative rates is that they don't work. I mean, we have like, you know, 20 years of data in Japan and close to 10 in Europe now. Uh, I mean, it hasn't worked. It's destroying the banks, doesn't support the economy, uh, and it massively distorts the flow of capital. So I think it would be a very bad uh, economic development for the U.S. economy to kind of import these policies that, that hurt the economy, hurt capital markets, and really, other than bringing cheaper borrowing costs for the government, don't do anything. Thanks for watching this RTD interview. Don't forget to pick up your RTD Scary George Round, only available at sdboyer.com. Now enjoy this interview. Welcome to Rethinking the Dollar. Today I'm excited to have first-time guest, Mr. Vincent Deluard. He's a global macro strategist for INTL FC Stone. Today he's joining us to share his thoughts on the global economy as well as, well as a variety of other subject matter. So Vincent, welcome to Rethinking the Dollar. Hi. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day for us. Definitely want to get your thoughts on a variety of subject matter. And so before we dive any further, for those that may not know Vincent Deluard, can you give us a little bit of your background and how have you arrived at this current point in your career? Sure. So I've been um, doing equity research, mostly global macro research, for uh, 11 years now. Uh, initially, I started by, by tracking fund flows, uh, supply and demand for the stock market. And then for 10 years, I covered um, European equity markets. And I joined uh, INTLFC Stone about uh, two years ago uh, to launch a global macro product. Uh, INTLFC Stone is a NASDAQ-listed broker dealer. Uh, thought it'd be relevant for you with the largest uh, broker of physical gold for uh, institutions. Uh, and I write for them weekly reports on pretty much any topic I like, which lately has been a lot, a lot has been about currencies and, and interest rates. Okay, understandable. I appreciate you for sharing that. And so I want to kick this uh, interview off with uh, just asking you a simple question. We're well beyond the halfway point of this year. As a strategist, you keep your eyes on a variety of subject matter. What are some things that has you concerned about the global, global economy at this current point? Well, maybe I'll start with something that does not have me concerned, and is the yield curve. I mean, it's been obviously the um, uh, the focus last week. I mean, when we had this near interest rate inversion on Wednesday, you saw the Dow uh, drop in 800 points in a day. Uh, and you see all these headlines saying, oh, the yield curve inversion has this, you know, kind of perfect track record. And, you know, if the yield curve is inverted, then that means we're going to get a recession within six to 12 months. Now, let me be clear. I have, I have no idea whether we're going to have a recession. I mean, I, I certainly the economy is slowing. It doesn't seem to me that it's going to be a recession, but um, I don't think the yield curve really means anything. Uh, if you look at the uh, track record historically, it hasn't worked in the UK, hasn't worked in Australia, hasn't, hasn't worked in Japan. Um, so I really don't think it's a valid signal. The, the other thing that worries me about this kind of, when you see everyone look at the same thing, it usually doesn't work. I mean, that's reflexivity, right? In capital markets, if everybody uses the same rule, that rule no longer works. Uh, and certainly you can see that it's very possible that just because the yield curve is such a topic of focus, that its message is clouded. And then the, the third part that um, um, makes me discard that message is, I think the bond market, especially the government bond market, is, is completely insane. Uh, I mean, yield curves are being manipulated all around the world. Uh, we are in the very late stage of a, of a massive bubble in sovereign debt. I mean, I'm sure you've seen all the reports about 16 trillion negative debt and counting. You, you see Germany. I mean, Germany has an inverted yield curve, but it's negative. <laughs> what does that mean? Does that make it positive? Uh, so I, I think that, you know, taking your cues from, from the bond market, it's kind of like asking for a stock tip at the, at the crazy house. 
Now, a lot of other people, a lot of other commentators always mention, and they bring, tend to bring up a lot of other indicators that are flashing red. And so we have, uh, we got uh, so a contraction in the manufacturing output. And so all those other things that, you know, well beyond my, my pedigree, but yet are those also, are those things that play, play along with the yield curve inversion that could signal some things as well or no? Well, I mean, there's no doubt that there has been a bit of a slowdown in, in the economy. Uh, partly, you know, you had this huge tax stimulus and, you know, just, you know, growth is always, you know, one year versus the other year. So in 2018, that was a, a tailwind because you had the effect of the stimulus and now it's a headwind. So you have the year over year effect that, that, that that's working against you. Um, and yeah, you, some, some weakness in manufacturing, so some weakness in the global trade data, uh, which is, mostly self-harm. I mean, it's because we started these trade wars. I mean, it could end just as easily as it started. Um, the part to me that is probably more important for, for the U.S. economy is the consumer, and, and that's the part that has shown the most resilience. Uh, you know, you've certainly seen the earnings of, of Target. Uh, a bunch of other retailers have done very well. Uh, and and the, that's what the U.S. is. I mean, fundamentally, the U.S. is a consumer-driven economy. So without the consumer kind of falling off a cliff, it's hard to see the U.S. falling in a recession. But again, a- anything is possible. Um, I wouldn't say it's more that much more likely now than it was a, a year ago. Um, and again, I think a lot of the reason for both the, the, the weakness today and the strength last year, you know, last year, everybody was talking about this globally synchronized recovery, right? I mean, the entire world was, was going and stock markets rallied and so forth. It was because the dollar was weak. And this year, uh, we have a lot of headwinds globally. And surely some of that is due to the trade wars, but a lot of it is just because the dollar is stronger and a strong dollar acts like a headwind for growth in China and emerging markets and other places like that. So a lot of the economic growth outlook to me is going to be dictated uh, upon the direction of the dollar. All right. Now the direction of the dollar, great subway right there, because is it true that the uh, strengthening dollar also puts somewhat of a, a tight pinch on the emerging markets, as you mentioned, when it comes time to pay back some of those debts, especially if their currencies aren't doing well, such as what's happening in Argentina and as well as other countries. Uh, so is a strong dollar necessarily good for the world? And it definitely is good for consumers here, but isn't that going to be a problem at some point? Yes, no, it, it, is, a, um, it is a big problem for, for much of the emerging world because you had this basically massive borrowing binge after 2009, you know, when... Um, so the U.S. was extremely overvalued. After the dollar was overvalued after the economic crisis. And then the Fed anchored rate at zero, the QE, and that pushes this wall of liquidity into emerging markets. So they bought a lot in U.S. dollar. And when 2014, 2016 happened, we had the normalization in the U.S., the U.S. economy was picking up. The dollar started to strengthen, and, these emerging mar- and the commodity prices collapsed. So all these emerging markets ended up. Uh, having to repay very expensive dollars at the same time as their economies were slowing and their dollar revenue, which were usually rated the price of some commodity. You can think of Chile and copper, uh, Russia and oil, um, uh, that, that, that were collapsing. So that, that, that has created that squeeze. Uh, and again, pretty much since then, if you want to know what growth is doing, we'll look at the dollar. Now, as far as the U.S. goes, uh, as you mentioned, a strong dollar is good for the consumer. In, in some way, it kind of helps uh, offset the cost of the tariffs. 
which gives some credence to Trump's claim that China is paying for the tariff because as long as the dollar appreciated, it's true that, you know, to some extent, you know, the purchasing power for U.S. consumers increases. Uh, but it's, it's very bad for uh, jobs, for employment, and for exporters. And that makes me think that as we get into 2020, uh, as the race heats up, uh, Trump will have a very uh, strong incentive to try to, to weaken the dollar. And you can certainly see that already in his communication. Um, you know, you take out the trolling about Greenland and stuff like that. Like the message has been uh, more and more on point. Oh, the dollar is too strong. Our trade partners are ripping us off and so forth. So uh, to me, that kind of gives me hope that uh, eventually we see some sort of resolution not necessarily on trade because it's a hard issue, but on currencies. So the trade wars will move into currency wars uh, in, in 2020. In 2020. And so uh, my question would be with the trade war situation as a strategist, as one who looks at the entire picture from both sides, will there be a solution to this trade war? Will it be a situation where the U.S. can, I guess, somehow offset the deficits uh, in regards to trade or the, or the trade deficit in, in regards to trade? You know, how will this resolve in your opinion? Um. Well, most likely, I mean, if you look at the, the general China-U.S. relation in terms of like two superpowers fighting for domination, there won't be a resolution. It's going to be fought over many decades, if not centuries. Uh, as far as the trade issue, um, it's both easy and hard. I mean, it's easy in the sense that, you know, we kind of started this so we could just end it. And I mean, certainly whenever Trump's done things like at the G20 in Osaka, I say, hey, oh, actually, I'm not going to do this. You know, we're back. Uh, it's a lot harder if we want China to kind of change its practice because uh, they view that as encroaching on their sovereignty and, you know, they'd rather just kind of drag their feet and, and wait it out. Um, so to me, if it is going to be solved, the fastest and easiest way to do it would be to do a tit for a tat, uh, remove the tariffs in exchange for re-evaluation of their RMB. So use the dollar as a, a tool in that, in that bargain. So you saw how, you know, the exact opposite of what happened in, um, in early August when uh, Trump slapped 10% tariff and then China after that let the Yuan um, go through seven. So do the other way around. At least right. a stable Yuan or, or at least, or maybe even appreciate it. And that's very much what Ronald Reagan did in the early 80s. Uh, um, there was a Plaza Agreement at the time, the offending party was Japan and, and Germany to a lesser extent. Uh, and basically what, what Ronald Reagan did, um, he said he got the finance minister of Japan, France, I believe Germany as well, got them in a room in the Plaza Hotel, which may have been owned by Trump at the time, uh, and told them, guys, if you do not agree to revalue your currency against the dollar, I'm going to stop tariff on you. I think that's something that Trump could very well do uh, in the next months, as he finds that the other battles that he's taking you know, trying to fight the Fed, trying to fight China on the tariff are really hard to win. That is something that he can do. So it looks like he has a lot on his plate as far as the battles and, and things he's started in this whole concept of make America great again. And the whole idea of, of getting the, the, the better half of the deal. I mean, that's one thing I think that if he doesn't see this through, it can come back and shoot him in the foot, especially as we get into the presidential season. And so you, you touched on something a while ago in regards to debt. And so at this current moment, we, we're – we were told that we were an economic expansion by our president via Twitter, but yet I think the mainstream is starting to feel something different. But yet the deficits continue to increase. The debt ceiling has been somewhat removed, abolished, halted, or whatever. And there's a, talks about tax cuts to help offset the slowdown or whatnot. How will all that play out? Will the deficits continue to grow? How problematic will it be in the days ahead? Because once again, $23 trillion and counting, you know, will it be paid back? 
Uh, no, I mean, public debt never gets paid back. Um, I mean, I, I would expect it to keep growing. Uh, I mean, if you look at the, CB, uh, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, they do this kind of like five, 10 year forecast. And I mean, the biggest drivers of the US deficit at this point are entitlement and social security, right? And these are things that are not gonna change. I mean, you have all these boomers and can't remember what the exact number is, but you have millions of boomers retiring every year. And, you know, when they were working, they were putting money in, now they're going to put money out. So uh, this is just a demographic reality that the deficits are going to increase. Now, of course, if we do stuff like, you know, um, uh, removing the um, uh, more tax cuts or, or taking money, uh, reducing the social security contribution and financing it with money from social security, you're just going to make that you know, faster and faster. And that certainly has been the the path we've been under the, the Trump administration, right? I mean, we are this, um, what is it, like um, 11th year, well, 10th year economic recovery, and we have a, a deficit to GDP of 5%. That's something that we've never seen. Um, I think it will be a concern at some point, uh, but, you know, we are, um, I mean, the bond market is getting otherwise, right? And the bond market is really begging governments to take their money. I mean, you look at a place like Germany, they, I mean, it was insane. It was, I think, uh, yesterday, two days ago, they have an, an auction of a 30-year boon, zero coupon, high price and negative yield. Meaning that the deal was, okay, well, you pay me 103 today, and I'm going to give you 130 years. I mean, this is people begging to be stolen. In a way, like I, I don't think it's good, but I can certainly understand the temptation. I mean, if, if people are fools, <laughs> you know, it's tempting to, to abuse it. Now, my question is, you know, without really knowing the, the, the details of the investment realm, you know, what type of entities would be willing to buy that? Because what I'm hearing is a lot of pension funds and retirement portfolio assets are the ones that kind of, you know, purchase those things. Now, if the world is going negative as far as just the yield on bonds, how does that make any sense on increasing those promises paid to investors in the, in the future when it comes to retirement, especially? Uh, it does not. I mean, I don't think there's any way the math can work. Um, I mean, I, I know the, the, the European system more than I do the U.S., but I mean, if, if you're a, a portfolio manager of, um, for a pension fund in Europe or an insurance, and the, your problem is you have these, these liabilities that are very far out, right, because you need to pay pensions for, you know, 30, 40, whatever, X, X years. Uh, and there's not that many assets that are on the curve. Um, and you also have regulation that tell you that you need to own uh, government bonds like they won't let you you know for example I, it'd be crazy but you know you could buy argentine debts you know there you get a yield right <laughs> i mean you may not get your principal back but you're going to get some yield but generally uh financial regulation makes that very costly and they tell you no you have to buy domestic debt so what do you do i mean you do what the regulator tells you when you, and you go out there and you buy that pre-term build and virtually ensuring that you won't have the money to pay your your uh, policyholders when, when the bills come due. Man, that's very scary, but that's reality. Um, so unfortunate. But yeah, let's, let's, let's get into a little bit to some issues here. I'm curious to find out your thought um, in regards to this back and forth between President Trump and Jerome Powell. He's very vocal and basically calling him out saying he doesn't know what he's doing. He's behind. He's behind. You know, he said everybody's cutting rates. And I saw that Switzerland today has the lowest uh, Fed funds rate at I think it's point zero eight, and so those are it's five ne nations. Ne negative, yeah, negative, yeah. Yeah, in the negative, yeah, in the negative. There's five nations right now, pretty much all in Europe that are are negative, and I think Trump wants to compete with them. So how how would that work? Well, um, 
I mean, to some extent, um, you know, I mean, Trump has this odd way of communicating, extremely um, irritating and seems a little bit like a bully. But I mean, uh, he does have a little bit of a point uh, as far as, you know, you know, the U.S., you know, Powell raised rates, you know, a quarter, eight times in a row when the entire world stayed at zero or below. So you've got this very uh, unusual situation where, you know, the U.S. at the highest, close to the high, I mean, outside of emerging markets had the highest yield in the world, right? I mean, you had a, generally Europe and Japan were below zero, uh, Australia, the U.K., New Zealand were on one, and then the U.S., you know, U.S., you know, two-year yields were trading close to 3% back in November. Daniel was at 3.2. Um, and really what the, what the world was saying is like rates are too high in the U.S. Um, and, and, and Trump's been hammering that message. Um, it seems to me that Powell has, has listened. Uh, I mean, he, you know, he has to walk a fine line or he has to keep the fiction that the, the central bank is independent. But at the same time, you know, as you know, the head of central bank is appointed by the president and so members um and he's been kind of walking back uh would it go negative i i don't think so uh i still think we have this pretty good uh you know nominal growth in the u.s certainly much better than anywhere else so that justifies um you know maybe um Cutting a little bit, but certainly not all the way to zero. The, the other thing that I would mention about negative rates is that they don't work i mean we have like you know 20 years of data in japan and close to 10 in Europe now, uh, I mean, it hasn't worked. It's destroying the banks, uh, doesn't support the economy, uh, and it massively distorts the flow of capital. So I think it would be a very uh, bad uh, economic development for the U.S. economy to kind of import these policies that, that hurt the economy, hurt capital markets, and really, other than bringing cheaper borrowing costs for the government, don't do anything. Very true. But yeah, one thing I, I think that on the, the losing, the people who will lose out are the people who are unfortunately possess large amounts of the currency itself as it is devalued along the way. What are your thoughts on the future of the dollar? And so we know a lot of nations, they, they coined a term de-dollarization. We have China, Russia, everyone's coming up with alternative payment systems and so-called gold back cryptocurrency. I mean, so all those things happening right now. Is the world running from the Federal Reserve note as a result of this policies that's been in place well i, I think so and it's, it's i mean it's not just the um i think there's only the desire to do that is there the delight to de-dollarize there i mean i think putting it in practice is harder than just like wanting it but there has certainly i think never been a a, a stronger consensus to, to move away from the dollar and it's not just because of of, of the fed it's, it's really i think mostly about sanctions and and the um I can never say this word. Uh, <laughs> uh, the fact that you know the, the U.S. Uh, uh, regulation enforcement agency can punish uh, um, people outside of the U.S. jurisdiction. So you're say you're a French bank and you do business in Iran, then you can get sanctioned because you use the dollar in the, in the transaction, uh, even though you've, you've complied with all applicable law in your jurisdiction. I mean that is a huge. Um, uh, disincentive to use dollar and a huge incentive to come up with something else. So you've seen, uh, you know, you mentioned Russia and China setting some of the trading yuan. Um, I think, what is it, two days ago, I saw that uh, Rosnet, uh, Russian oil producer, is going to start uh, invoicing in, in euros. Um, the Europeans have set up that little uh, payment system with Iran to go around the sanction. So these are trickles. At this point, none of these things are, you know, you, it's going to make a big dent, right? But they start to exist. And, and I think 
at, you know, that is the biggest long-term threat to the dollar is, you know, whether we have kind of, we will reach critical mass and we'll get to a point where, you know, I mean, you look at a lot of emerging markets, the biggest client is China, not the U.S., uh, both on the export and on the import side. So why use a third currency to transact? You know, so why sell, you know, why are you going to sell your copper in dollar and then turn this dollar into yuan so you can buy Chinese manufacturing good? Wouldn't it be just easier to settle in yuan? And I think that's eventually where it's going to happen. So I want to talk about what appears to be getting a lot of attention in the mainstream news now more than ever. And it happens to be the, the, the sudden spike in the price of gold and silver. And so you work for one of the biggest gold uh, dealers, as you mentioned, broker dealers, as you mentioned. What's 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 been activity on your end? Are, are you seeing spikes, and why is that? And you know, are people looking to hold physical or buy products or or, or what? Well, both. Um, I mean, the, the the biggest reason has been this kind of dovish pivot of the Fed, right? I mean, the, the biggest problem with gold is that it doesn't have a yield, right? So I mean, it's costly to hold and it doesn't yield anything. Uh, well, if rates are going to fall to zero or below. <laughs> That slips, right? I mean, you, you look at you know a place like Germany or Switzerland, you know the if you keep money at the bank, they're gonna take a chunk of it every every month. Um, well, you know if you own gold in in a vault somewhere, <laughs> no one is gonna go like, you know, uh, take a little bit out of it. So um, as as rates fall, I think you have this you know natural tendency to go towards gold, and then there may be also be um, kind of a, a geopolitical aspect of this, like a gold, you know, I, I don't think people should own gold for price appreciation necessarily, even though I, I do think it will eventually go higher, but just as an insurance policy, I mean, you know, when, when, when the Dow was down 800 points um, last, last Wednesday, um, you know, the, the only things that were up were the Japanese yen and, and gold. Um, and I think as, I, I don't know how this situation is going to evolve with trade with China, with, with Hong Kong, with Taiwan and all the other hotspots, uh, but certainly there's this perception that a lot of these issues are are escalating. It's not very clear that the actors who are in charge of them have the cool heads um, or even the desire to, to cool things down. Um, so we'll benefit from that. What, what are your thoughts on just the, the gold to silver ratio? Um, do you do that? Is that something that you consider as far as silver being a little bit more uh, of greater value because it's a lot cheaper or does that ever factor in uh, in regards to just por portfolio allocation of the metals? Right, right. No, that's nice. Um, and the concept of value when it comes to precious metal is, is difficult because precious metals don't don't really yield anything. Right? I can understand the value of a, of a stock. Like you, you bring it to earnings, even of the bonds to yield. Well, what's the value of a precious metal? I mean, the value of or the value of crypto, <laughs> it's, it's whatever people are willing to pay for it. Uh, so it's kind of hard to make a, a value case. Um, that being said, yeah, I mean, you know, the you know, silver is trading very close to all-time low, starting to outperform. So if, if you if you believe in technical analysis, it certainly looks good. Um, generally, I mean, silver has kind of a uh, this higher it's gold on steroids, right? I mean, if gold does well, usually silver does better. By the way, that works the other way around as well. Yeah. So when when gold goes down, silver usually goes down as well. Um, so, I mean, surely, um, you know, it, it, it makes sense, I think, to have an allocation to both, uh, the ratio may go up or down, but they both, um, represent some sort of a hedge against, um, black swan events. 
now uh, before we draw wrap things up i'm curious i, I came across a uh, our article i believe you wrote in regards to the millennials and fang stocks and so can you can you share with a little, little bit of that you know subject matter there because i think i like to reach out to the younger population and just give them different ideas and concepts on the concept of investing what, do you, what, do you, what what's your opinion on that sure so i was just um struck by an observation that um in 2009 when the um S&P 500 closed at, I think, at six, 666 on intraday March. The average millennial was 20 years old. Uh, and um, today, when the S&P 500 is close to 3,000, uh, he's 30 years old. And, you know, the, this decade, when you're 20 to 30, uh, this is what, you know, demographers call the coming of age decade. It's probably the most age-home moment. Uh, and from an economic perspective, it's especially important uh, because that's when your income goes from zero over the 20 year in college or at home, or if you work, you have a very low wage to, you know, being in your thirties uh, and it's where you hopefully by this time have a steady job, make good money. So the growth is, is infinite, right? And, and a lot of that growth is also very discretionary because you don't have kids yet. You don't have a mortgage. Uh, you don't have to take care of your parents. So you have all this discretionary income that's going very, very fast and you're going to spend it on new uh, consumption items. And, and for the millennials, these new things where, you know, binge watching shows on Netflix, um, uh, buying the latest iPhone, uh, you know, uh, buying everything on Amazon Prime. Uh, what's the other thing? Um, uh, you know, I don't know how people spend money on Instagram, but certainly they post a lot of pictures of themselves there uh, and so forth. So the FANG stocks were able to capture this massively rising tide. Remember that the millennial generation is the largest generation in US history. There are more millennials than there were boomers. And every year, you know, the discretionary income of the millennials went to 20, 30%. And so was the top line of these companies. Now, like I said, the average millennial is turning 30 years old. Um, I'm actually a little, I'm actually on the oldest side of it. Uh, so getting close to 40 now. Uh, and, and, you know, when you're, you, when you're at that age, well, your, your earnings don't ride as fast. Uh, usually you have finally bought a house and the millennials kind of did that later than prior generation. So that, that's really happening now. Uh, so instead of spending your money on discretionary stuff, you're going to spend it on the mortgage, you have kids, you know, you're no longer going to, you know, spend as much money on, on, on fun stuff. You don't have to buy diapers, pay for school and so forth. Uh, so a lot of the growth that fueled the rise of, of the thing is, is, is kind of coming out. You can see that in, um, Netflix, right? Uh, last quarter, I think their number of US subscribers declined for the first time in history. They have to start raising prices in order to grow, which tells you they're becoming normal companies. And then even if you look at all five of the things right now, over the past year, are all underperforming the S&P 500 index. It's never happened before. Mm. So, so that's basically telling me, or what I, from what I'm hearing is that the next 10 years possibly, outside of all the things we've covered prior to now, could be very problematic for those companies, given the fact that Facebook, Amazon, they're all entertainment and not necessarily, they're not needed for to sustain life. They're more so entertainment and luxuries. So the, the, the valuation of those companies might be in jeopardy moving forward. Yes, and I'm glad you, you brought the term valuation. I'm certainly not suggesting, you know, these companies themselves are, are at risk. I mean, you know, they, they grow, most of them are great business. They generate tremendous cash flow. Um, but, you know, the question is always the price. Um, and something we, we went through something very similar in the in the 60s and the 70s so in the 60s and 70s you had this company called the nifty 50 uh, and these were like large cap growth stocks very much like the thing at the time so at the time it was uh, general electric ibm uh coca-cola walt disney 
uh, it's kind of all American firms that were targeting this rapidly expanding middle class and the, and the boomer generation. And they kept, you know, the multiples kept going higher and higher. I think, you know, by 1972, when they peaked, they were trading at around 70, 80 times earnings, which is pretty much where we are in some of the thing names. Think of Amazon or Netflix. And then after that, you know, when you have, when you start from such a high base and your growth starts so slow, even though you're still doing well, I mean, most of these companies are still around today, you know, that multiple goes down, down, down. And basically the multiple of the Nifty 50 came down all the way from the 70s to the 80s. Uh, and I would expect something similar to happen for the FANG in, in the next decades. Wow, that's going to be very interesting to see how that unfolds, especially as we enter into a very questionable decade. So very last question, and I'll, I'll let you go. Uh, Jackson Hole's underway. No telling what's going to come out of there as far as policies implemented or ways of keeping this thing, keeping this expansion going, which is Jerome Powell loves to mention. Uh, will there be quantitative easing coming, in your opinion? And how low do you see rates going in the next couple of months during this presidential cycle as Trump and uh, the Fed go back and forth? Mm, uh... Good question. Will there be quantitative easing? Eventually, yes. Um, for the reasons we discussed earlier, that um, you know the, the deficits are going to keep growing, mostly for demographic reasons, uh, and and simply the central bank is the only one <laughs> that has the money to do something about it because they can print it. Uh, so eventually, yes, I believe you'll see quantitative easing. Uh, will you see it before Trump's office? Probably not, but I, I wouldn't rule out anything. I mean, that's one thing that we, we've learned with with Trump is that things can change very quickly. Um, as far as rate cuts, um, a hard one. I mean, Powell has been kind of pushing back. Um, I would be more interested to see what happens to the currency market. Um, I think, you know, if you really want to help global growth, what you need to do is to weaken the dollar. Now, Jackson Hole is a great setting to do this. You get all the central bankers around the table and you can kind of have a, a pact, right? Okay, well, you stop devaluing your currency. I will stop doing it. Uh, and, and that way, basically, kind of agree that, you know, maybe we get to put at the euro rise, which is massively overvalued. I'm sorry, undervalued. We stop depreciating the yuan. Uh, and, and that would be a way to help global growth in, in 2020. All righty, Vincent Deluard, I appreciate you for joining us here on Rethinking a Dollar. Can you give the audience a way to follow you and to keep a hold of and to find out more about what you do as a strategist or whatnot? Sure. Uh, so, I mean, the best way really is to <laughs> trade with our firm, INTLC Stone. Uh, we service customers around the world, uh, physical markets, securities. Uh, a lot of our activities in institutional. If you're an institutional fan of the firm, you can follow my research. Uh, if not, uh, Twitter is great. I say enough. I mean, you have a lot of great minds on Twitter. I mean, it's incredible that this service is, is free and, you know, forget the trolls, block some people, curate your list, and, and you can have a, a wonderful experience on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your day. You're welcome. I enjoy it. Bye.